You're listening to a message from South Hills Church in Burbank, California. For more information about South Hills, check out SouthHillsBurbank.com. We want to dive into the message this morning. So if you're a note taker, uh, I encourage you to uh, get ready to write. If you want to take pictures of the screen, that'd be fantastic. Uh, whatever you want, just, uh, just lean into this conversation this morning. We're going to look at a story in just a moment. It's a story that's actually in all four of the Gospels. So if you have a Bible or if you have an app, we're going we're gonna to focus in the Gospel of John. But it's, an actual, it's actually a story that's in all four Gospels. There's, there's not a lot of stories that are in all of the Gospels, but this is one of them. It's a story that if you've been around church, it might be somewhat familiar to you. But I guarantee you've never heard it and you've never heard some of the nuance that we're going to lean into this morning, um, just because there's so much to it. There's so much history into it. And so we have to understand context to really understand what it's really talking about and what, what we can then apply to our lives and then walk out of here changed and challenged. So that's my hope. That's my goal. But as we kick off this series, uh, we really want to talk about um, how do we create the perfect place for imperfect people? What, is, what does that even mean, and, and, and how do we create a place where imperfect people feel welcomed walking into this place? If you didn't know this, uh, we are all imperfect, and if you're perfect, this would be a great opportunity to slip out. Uh, this is because none of us are. None of us have it all figured out. None of us have just arrived to some mysterious end game. We are, we are all trying to figure this thing out, and we all are flawed, and we all fail from time to time. And so if you're imperfect, then you're in the right place. But how do we be intentional about that? And what is it that Jesus shows us? And what does he model to help us understand what that even means and what that looks like? And so this morning, we're going to lean into that. And, and I'm sure that uh, this relates to all of us, because at some point or another in your life, you have experienced some level of anger. I, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've gotten angry at something. And, and we all tend to do this. And most of the time when we get angry, it's usually anger resulting from somebody trying to prevent us from getting what we wanted. Like we wanted something. There was, there was some career. There was a job. There was a parking spot. Whatever it was, you wanted something and somebody prevented you from getting it. Therefore, you got angry. Now, not to single anybody out, but if you have children, you experienced this this week. And you may not know this, and the only reason I know you did is because I did, and it's because Halloween happened this past week. <laughs> Trick-or-treating brings out the worst in our children. And there's, there's some happiness in there, but then there's some anger involved. And what happens usually is we set some type of parameters on our kids of, of what they can and can't eat in one sitting, and then what happens? You're preventing them from getting what they want. And depending on how that night has already gone, it usually ends up in an anger session. It's a fit on the floor. It's an all out freak out kind of moment. Now in our house, what we do is we, uh, we've always done this. We've always let our kids go and, and trick or treat. And then when they come home, we, uh, they empty all of their candy into uh, what we just call is like our communist system. And so we have a communist candy bowl and then we distribute it, uh, distribute it amongst the people as needed. And so that's what we do in our home. That does not mean I'm a communist, okay? So don't, like, t- don't go to Twitter and be like, eh, Pastor Dave is a communist. I'm not, okay? That was just our ideal for Halloween. But our kids are getting older. And with older kids comes this selfishness and desire to have what they think is theirs. And so it's now turned into, um, well, I just want to keep my candy. I understand you want to keep your candy, but that's not our system. Well, can't I just eat my candy? This is my candy. 
And then it starts to escalate from there. And then somebody has a, something that somebody else got from a house and they remember that that was their candy. And then it's, that's mine. Give me mine. And then it turns into this fight. And so we had to do this like creative system. And I'm not that smart. I just made it up on the spot. And, my, and it actually turned out to be somewhat fun. But we did this like round robin tournament of like choosing candy with like bonus questions where then they could choose more candy. It was the dumbest thing ever. People are like, wow, that's so smart. It was really dumb, honestly. I just made it up in the moment to try to make it fun to distribute candy and then make them not eat it all. And so that's what we did. But here's what usually happens is that it ends up with somebody getting angry because they want what they want and they want it the way they want it. And I'm keeping them from getting what they want. Therefore, I receive all the anger. And this is the same thing that you do to other people. When you want something, you want it the way you want it, you want it when you want it, you want it how you want it, and when somebody prevents you from getting what you want, there's anger involved. And you might have been on the the, the delivery end of that anger, and you might have been on the receiving end of that. But one way or another, we've all been in these moments where we, we get angry. Now, what happens to the core, at the core of you and I? Really, at the core of it, if you think about it, the reason you're angry is not because of, of, of you wanting something for someone else. At the core of your anger and my anger is this desire to liberate ourselves. It's really selfish, if you think about it. You see, because I, I want what I want, and I want it the way I want it, and I want to protect my own feelings. I want to protect my own preferences. I want to protect my own opinions or my own comfort level. I want what I want, and if I can't get it and you're keeping me from it, I'm going to get angry with you. It's, it's birthed out of selfishness. But what we see, if you look throughout the Bible, if you just take a moment and you read the different writings within Scripture, you see moments where God gets angry. But God's anger is never a selfish anger. His anger is always geared towards injustice. Anytime, anytime you read, especially throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you see these moments where God gets angry, but it's really his anger is about the oppressed. It's about people being taken advantage of. It's about people being hurt or enslaved or manipulated or abused. God's anger is always surrounding injustice. And this morning, what we're going to do is lean into this story where we see Jesus getting angry. And on the surface, it just feels like he gets angry for no reason, and it's hard to understand, but we're going to dig beneath the surface this morning. And we're going to see Jesus get angry, and we're going to see Jesus escalate his anger and do something that, again, on the surface feels irrational. It feels a little crazy. But when we understand the context, I think you're going to see what Jesus' anger was really all about. Now, to get there, we have to understand the, the backstory of all of this. So this particular story about Jesus getting angry is written in all four of the Gospels. And the Gospels are the four stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all uh, they're all historical accounts. They're eyewitnesses. There's, they're, they're people who took information from eyewitnesses and wrote it down after the fact. But they were all surrounding close to the life and the time frame of Jesus walking and talking on earth. And so for all of them to capture this moment, this moment must have been significant for them. 
It must have been one of those moments that stands out in your mind. So if you were to ask one of the disciples, hey, re- recall a couple of like, your greatest moments with Jesus. They probably would have gone to the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000. They might have talked about the walking on water moment. But this moment would have been right up there. Because this one burned something into all of their minds. Because they saw Jesus respond in a way that was so different and so unique that it left a mark on them. So what is it that Jesus did? Well, partly it's what he did and partly it's what he said. In all four Gospels, there's the same exact quote from Jesus. And it's not just Jesus' words. Jesus is actually quoting a a prophet in the Old Testament. He's quoting the book of Isaiah. And he's quoting a, a specific message from Isaiah. And here's what he says. In all four of the accounts, in all four of the Gospels, it says this. Jesus is saying, it is written. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. So why would Jesus quote that passage of Isaiah? It's because everybody in the room would have known what Jesus was saying. They've all heard this. Most of them have memorized this. They they know the scroll of Isaiah. They know the writings of Isaiah. They would all be familiar with this statement. And actually, after my house shall be a house of prayer, in Isaiah it says, for all the people. But instead of for all the people, you have made it into a den of robbers. And something significant is happening there. So in Luke chapter 19, we're not gonna, I'm not going to read this to you. These are the three accounts of this actual story in Luke, Matthew, and Mark. If you want to read it, you can catch up this week and go back to it and, and read through these. But the, 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 the part of Luke is pretty plain. It's pretty vanilla in the story. It's just very direct and to the point. Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. Matthew tells us some other people that were in the environment, that there were some money changers. There were people sitting around selling animals. But there were also the blind and the lame and the beggars and the broken who were trying to get to the temple, but were having a hard time getting there because of all the commerce and all the money changing that was happening. Physically, it was difficult for them to do. I would, I would liken this to like if you've ever been in a crowd, if you've ever gone to like a game or a really crowded event if you've ever gone to a store on Black Friday and you have like a twisted ankle or you're on crutches and you're trying to maneuver around people and, and there's just a sea of people and nobody cares about you and your injury or whatever's going on, this is like that moment. Jesus is standing in the temple and he sees the people that are trying to get to the place where they need to get to for God and to connect with God, but they can't get there because of all of the other action that's happening that shouldn't be happening in that place. And then Mark, in Mark chapter 11, Mark actually tells us a little bit more detail. Mark tells us that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. But the funny thing is that Jesus never taught. Jesus actually never said anything other than quoting Isaiah. There's no record of Jesus preaching a sermon or giving a lesson or going into the Beatitudes or anything like that. Jesus' actions taught something. What he did taught a lesson. So it's it's really his actions that were teaching louder than his own words. But the people were astonished at what he was teaching in this particular moment. So what in the world is happening? Well, we're going to look at the Gospel of John to read the story. I think the Gospel of John captures it the best for you and I. And so John chapter 2 starts like this. 
In verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, that might not mean much to you, but there are three times a year when Jews would travel to Jerusalem. There's three different festivals that they would travel to Jerusalem for, and the Passover was one of them. The Passover was a celebration of what God had done to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. It was this moment of the Passover that took place, and so they would come together. They would celebrate. It was a very significant spiritual ceremonial process for the Jews. Everybody would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this moment. So the city would have been full. The city would have been busy. There's a a ton of people trying to get to where they need to go because there's something else that happens during Passover. During Passover, you would want to go to the temple. and You would want to present some type of burnt offering to God for your sins to be forgiven because this is the system that God had created with his people, the Israelites, and this was part of the old covenant. And so they're still operating under the old covenant and you would have to have a spotless animal. You would have to bring that animal with you to the temple and you would have to offer it as a burnt sacrifice. Now, if the whole burnt sacrifice thing freaks you out, I get it. It's kind of, it's odd. It's not part of our culture. We would not accept that anymore. But basically just think of it this way. The whole city smelled like barbecue. It was probably amazing for those of you that like barbecue. For those of you that don't, you would have hated it, but I would have loved it, okay? It would have been a good moment for me. So the city smells and there's this char in the air and everyone is going to the temple to get their sins forgiven, again, under the old covenant system. The temple was at the top of this hill and and people would go to the bottom and they would become ceremonially clean and they would have to wash a certain way and do certain things. They would put on a white robe and then they would hike up the side of the mountain to the temple so they could present their burnt offering. And as they're marching up the hill, they would sing this, it's called a psalm of ascent. They would sing this song to God. So this moment is a joyous moment. It's a reverent moment. It's a serious ceremonial occasion because you are about to go to the presence of God and have your sins forgiven. So this is a big deal. And so when Jesus gets to the temple, John chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that in the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers were sitting there. See, when Jesus gets to the temple, he's not seeing this beautiful ceremonial occasion of this joyous occasion of people coming to God and having their sins forgiven. What he sees is people selling things and taking advantage of people. And it's filled with smelly animals and it's filled with people that are trying to sell stuff. And Jesus is looking at it and he's thinking this is not what it was intended to be. See, what we, we, what we kind of lose in all this understanding of, of this first century world is that you would go to the temple and you'd have to present your own animal. They were not complimentary. It's not like you could go to you know, the Best Western little complimentary buffet and like, get what you needed. This was a different moment. You would have to bring your own animal. And most people couldn't travel with their own animal. So they would have to pay money to get an animal that they could then lay down on an altar, and offer as a sacrifice. And what everybody understood was that sacrifice meant that it would cost you something. And that's the nature of what sacrifice is. You see, the nature of sacrifice is that it will always cost you something. Not necessarily cost somebody else something, it'll cost you something. 
And so most people can't travel with an animal over long distances to, to bring it to the temple. So they would wait and they would purchase that animal when they get to the temple. This is nothing new. This wasn't new for Jesus. Jesus had seen this. In fact, it had been in place a long time before Jesus. So the issue wasn't selling the animals. It was the exchange rates that they were giving to people. It was the fact that people were taking advantage of those who didn't have. They saw them at a point of need, and they saw an opportunity to make more money on them. You also had to buy animals with a certain currency, and most people didn't come from the place that had that currency, so they'd have to offer some type of exchange rate for their money. And so when they would show up with their money, they were giving unfair rates. Again, taking advantage of people at a place in their life where they're simply wanting to come to God and get their sins forgiven. The temple had become a place that it was never intended to be. And so what happens? Look at verse 15. John chapter 2, verse 15 says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, that, that escalated quickly. Like, let's just be honest, okay? That, that escalated way faster than I thought it would. Jesus gets angry, which may change your view of him. And to be honest, I hope in some ways it does. See, we should see and feel something different in what's going on here. It's important to understand that Jesus says to the people in the temple, he's quoting this Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Again, he's telling the people that the house of, the, the house of God was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the people, not just the people that had, not just the people that had money, not just the wealthy, not just those who, who had some type of privilege. The house of God was supposed to be for all the people. And so he got angry because it wasn't. It was not being what it was supposed to be. Now, there, there's another story. There's a more history kind of lying underneath the surface here. And so we could run through this, but I think it's important to understand something deeper. See, we have to understand that there's a whole bunch of people here. There's Jesus, there's the crowds of people, there's the disciples somewhere nearby, there's the religious leaders who from this point forward, they start trying to plot to, to capture Jesus or to kill Jesus. There's the money changers, there's people selling things, there's crooks, there's, there's robbers, there's people taking advantage of people. There's all this stuff, but there's something even bigger itself, and it's the temple. The, the temple is the place that they're gathering and we have to understand something about the temple because the temple doesn't mean to you and I what it meant to a first century person. It just simply doesn't carry the same weight or the same context for us. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on it, but I, I would recommend something to you. If you're a reader, um, even if you're not a reader, you, this is one of those books that you can fly through because you just don't want to put it down. It reads so easy. If you're a, an audio person, the author reads this book. Andy Stanley actually reads this book on the audio version, so it feels like you're just like sitting down and listening to him talk to you. It's pretty amazing, actually. But the book is called Irresistible by Andy Stanley. It'll, it'll revolutionize the way that you think about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in his book, in a couple chapters, he talks about the temple in a way that I've never heard somebody talk about the temple. And so if I can, let me, let me give you some history on the temple. The temple was built originally, the very first temple for God was built by King Solomon, the, the wisest, richest man to ever walk the earth, somewhere around 600 B.C., 
And the, the temple was intended to be a symbol of the power of God, but also the glory of Israel. It was known throughout the entire world. You can read tons of literature outside of the Bible that refers to the temple in Israel that was the temple with the faceless God. Because they were so reverent towards God that they would not build an idol in God's image. That was breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So they would never have an idol of God. It was just the the temple with a faceless God. And everybody in the world knew it because it was the most beautiful temple that anyone has ever seen. And when Israel would be conquered and controlled and, and taken over by multiple people throughout its history, the temple was always rebuilt. But the thing that we don't know and the thing that you might not know was that David was the one who wanted to build the temple originally. David wanted to build the temple because God at the time was living in a tent. It was called the tent of meeting and it was a, a portable place that God's presence would dwell every single time that they would stop. God's presence would fill the inner portions of this tent. And I know initially this sounds kind of odd, but just follow with me for a moment. So they had this ragtag tent that they would move around, but David wanted God to have a better house. He wanted to build God a beautiful home to live in. But God never wanted to live in just one place. God wanted to be portable. God wanted to be mobile. God wanted to go where his people went. But David thought God deserved better. And so David wanted to build and, this, and create this beautiful facility for God. But God would not allow David to build it. So David did everything to set it up and hand it off to his son. And his son Solomon built it. And when they built this place, when this temple was finally built, it was this reminder to the people of God's presence. Now, be, God didn't necessarily want it originally, but God made a deal with his people. He made a a bilateral covenant with his people that if you uphold your end of this deal, then I will uphold my end of the deal. You stay true to my commandments and my presence will remain in this temple. But if you do not remain true to my commandments, then I don't have to uphold my end of the deal. My presence does not have to remain in this temple. And that's important for us to understand. The temple was supposed to be a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so when Jesus is returning to the temple during this time of Passover, being fully God and fully man, being the Son of God, Jesus is almost like going home. He's going to spend time with his heavenly Father in his Father's presence And so to understand why Jesus is going to be so angry at what the temple had become, it's because Jesus was longing to be in a place with his father. He was wanting to be in this place to experience the temple for what the temple was always supposed to be, a place for all the people. So whatever anger Jesus was feeling, it was not irrational. It was not knee-jerk anger. Consider this for a moment. This is still the time that the disciples are trying to figure out Jesus. This, this is the gospel of John chapter two. They've only been together for one chapter for a very short period of time. He's called them. They started following him. The first miracle we have on record is Jesus going to a wedding and turning water into wine. And so the initial thought of the disciples is, 
I'm following this guy because he's turning a regular beverage into a better beverage. Like that's his, that's their mindset, right? So they're thinking like, this is a wedding miracle. He put out the best wine at the end. Not that normally was not the case. You would put the cheap stuff out at the end because nobody cared, but Jesus turned the, the regular stuff into the better stuff. And they were all blown away in this wedding miracle moment. So everybody's looking at Jesus thinking like, oh my gosh, this is the guy that we're following. Look at this incredible miracle that he just put on display. And then the second thing he does is march into the temple and get angry and create an insane scene. An incredible scene of dumping money and whipping at people and flipping over tables. And that's the moment all the other disciples are like, oh, shoot. I'm not sure this is what we wanted to commit to, guys. Uh, He seems a little crazy. Maybe he's not the rabbi we thought he was. I don't know about this now. But the funny thing is that nobody leaves Jesus. Nobody walks away from him. None of his disciples are like, hey, Jesus, um, we'll catch you some other time. But there's a reason for it. See, what Jesus sees is he sees the blind and the lame trying to get access to the temple. More than likely, they're being blocked by all of the commerce that's occurring. He sees a place that's supposed to be holy, a place that he once called home, being used to store and house all the money for the rich people. See, what Jesus saw was they saw a temple that was no longer a house for the people to connect with God. What he saw was a house for the powerful to take advantage of the weak. And so when we start trying to understand the anger of Jesus, you can start to figure out that Jesus was seeing the house of his father, the house of God, being something that it was never intended to be. It was not a place for the powerful, the haves, to to take advantage of the weak or the have-nots. It was supposed to be a place for all the people, all the people, to connect with God. And then suddenly there's this dramatic pause. I don't know what took place between verse 14 and 15, but by the time we get to 15, Jesus is fashioning a whip. And we could skip past that, but I I think it's too important to skip past. Jesus is going to fashion a whip. Fashioning a whip is not something that you do quickly. It's... he didn't find a whip. He didn't borrow a whip. He didn't buy a whip. He wasn't Indiana Jones. He didn't have one on his hip pocket, you know. This was Jesus sitting down to fashion a whip. Now, this is just my imagination. So this is not biblical. This is not scripture. This is just the way my brain works because I want to picture this moment. I picture a stare down moment. I picture Jesus fashioning a whip where you would have to weave together several different long pieces of leather. And as you're doing it, you're kind of having to pull it really tight and you have to make sure it's woven correctly. And as he's weaving it, I picture like this Clint Eastwood kind of stare down moment. Like he's staring at the money changers while he's weaving a whip. And they're looking back at him and they're like, why is that guy staring at us? And he won't break eye contact. Like he's just, he's mugging them and he's just owning them in this moment. And he's just staring at him while he weaves the whip. And every once in a while, he has to break away and he has to actually test the whip because you got to make sure that it's, it's cracking correctly. And so he would, he would weave it and he would pull it off and he would just crack it. And I imagine he's cracking it while he's still making eye contact. <laughs> and so this is a moment to me, this is a moment where Jesus is staring down these people. And they're wondering, what is this rabbi getting ready to do? Rabbis don't do this. Teachers don't act like this. I've never seen this 
before. And you can imagine that even his own disciples are like, what's getting ready to happen, uh, Jesus? And he probably just ignores them. Like he's not even responding to them at this point. That's just how I picture this moment. That Jesus, in this moment, no, no, no version of this story does Jesus ever lose control. He never once goes nuts. He doesn't lose it. He doesn't just blow his top. This is a calculated moment by Jesus. There's something that he's going to do that he needs to do, and there's a reason why he's going to do it. I think it's fair to say that things in this moment were pretty tense. I think it has to be a pretty tense moment. Everybody's, everybody's wondering what's getting ready to happen, and they're kind of, they keep peeking over at Jesus to make sure, like, what is he, is he still there? Is he still, yep, he's still there, still doing the thing, and he's still staring at me. Like, what's going on with Jesus? And then all we know is that he drives them all out. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know what that moment would have been. I, I, we don't know, did he drive them out by, by the whip? Did he drive them out by his words? Did he drive them out just by the stare? Like, that would have been impressive to me if, if it was just nothing but the stare. Did he take the whip and did he catch a corner of a table and snap off a piece of wood? And everybody was like, oh, he's, okay, he's serious. Like, and then everybody just starts leaving. Does he grab a leg of a table with a whip and flip it over, kind of Indiana Jones style? Like, that would have been pretty cool. I wish that they would have written that in there. Does he whip something in the middle of the room like a chandelier and swing across to the other side to where everybody was like, wait, you were just there, but now you're over here. I don't know. Okay, again, I'm just, I'm imagining. Okay, I'm stretching the story a little bit. But we don't know what happened. All we know is that he drives them out by his actions, by his words, by the stare down. But I think we have to unpack something in here. There's a part of this story that we just simply have to understand. And the idea behind this is this, that anger is not always an inappropriate response. Anger is not always an inappropriate response. It's what motivates your anger. And it's what you do with it that determines whether or not it's righteous or holy or good or productive or appropriate. It depends on the motivation behind your anger. Jesus doesn't grab a whip or buy a whip. He makes a whip, which means he sat down, he thought about it, he calculated it. It was a controlled response. It was an appropriate response. It was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was not a, a, a quick Facebook comment because you disagree with somebody's thought. It was not an anger-filled tirade. It was not a text message. It was a calculated, controlled reaction. And to me, what's remarkable in this entire story is the outcome of this chaotic scene. I mean, just just think about how chaotic this moment is. This place, this part of the temple is filled with people. It is packed because this is Passover. Everybody is there. And everybody is squeezed into the temple and you've got money exchanging happening and you've got people selling animals and you've got people trying to get in and people trying to get out and people trying to go from this side to that side. You've got all this action going on and Jesus comes into the middle of it and he quotes Isaiah and he forms a whip and he begins whipping something and yelling something and flipping over tables and money's pouring out and everybody's running for cover. It is a chaotic moment. But nobody looks at Jesus and says, really? Like, you're supposed to be the son of God, and this is how you behave? Nobody looks over and says, dude, you need some, like, serious anger management. Like, can we get a class? Can we go to, like, a 12-step? Can we work through this? 
Nobody looks at Jesus and says, you know what, Jesus, you really need a timeout. You just need to come over here and sit down and calm yourself down. Like this is, nobody reacts that way to Jesus. Why? Because everybody knew that what he did was right. Nobody had a problem with it, but nobody wanted to do anything about it. Everybody knew that this part of the temple was not meant for money changing. Everybody knew that it wasn't meant for the animals. Everybody knew that this part of the temple was meant to be something else. And so when Jesus reacts the way he, re- he reacts, the people are astounded by his teaching. The people cheer Jesus in this moment because Jesus did what no one else wanted to do. And he reacted out of anger, but it was controlled and it was correct and it was appropriate because it was righteous and it was holy and it was good and it was productive. Jesus in this moment is going to reach down to the heart of the issue. And this is what Jesus would always do. He would reach down to the heart of the issue through whatever means he had to. And the people would marvel that Jesus was such a different rabbi because nobody ever acted like this before. Nobody's ever talked like this before. No one would ever do this because everyone was afraid to be like this. But Jesus was not afraid to be different. Jesus was not afraid to push the line. Jesus was not afraid to push the envelope a little bit. Jesus wanted to reach down to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue was that they were making God's house something that God's house was never intended to be. So why would Jesus, why would this be his second public action? Like, why was this his second thing? Water into wine and then crazy at the temple. It's because this was significant. This was so huge for people to understand that Jesus was going to be a different rabbi. He was going to be a different teacher. He was going to do things that pushed against the norm. And he was going to try to right the wrong. So what would have angered him so much? The same thing that angers God. You see, what angers God is when the haves hold back or hold down the have-nots. And this is what angers Jesus. It's because he sees the broken and the blind and the lame and the struggling and the hurting, trying to make their way through the temple to get to the presence of God so they could have their sins forgiven. And they can't even get there because of what everybody's doing in front of them, of what they've turned the house of God into. That this house suddenly became something that it was never intended to be. But there's something else going on. This particular part of the temple was known as the court of the Gentiles. This, this area was known as the court of the Gentiles, which means this was the place for the non-Jews to come because non-Jews were interested in understanding who is this faceless God? Who is this God of the Hebrews that we hear so much about, but we don't know anything about? This was the part of the temple that they were allowed to come into and investigate God. And so what drove Jesus crazy is that they were making the house of God not for all the people just for their own people. And if you ever wondered what is South Hills all about and what has what this church been designed to be, this church has been designed to be like the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles simply means non-Jews. This church has been designed to be a place where someone can walk in and try to uncover and discover what a relationship with God looks like. 
that you could walk in here in all of your imperfection and ask some questions and try to discover some things at your own pace and not feel judged, not feel looked down upon, but you could explore your faith. South Hills has always been and will always be intended to be the perfect place for imperfect people. But the question we have to ask is that if this is supposed to be the perfect place for imperfect people, then what's the cost? What is the cost for you and I to make this that place? Because there's something that we have to give up. Again, sacrifice costs us something. If, we, if we're willing to make this place that kind of place of, 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 a, of a perfect place for imperfect people, then it's going to cost you and I something. We're going to have to give up something that we think church should be. We're going to have to let go maybe of some of our, our ideals of what we thought it was supposed to be all about. We're going to have to give up our seat every once in a while to somebody else that sits in your seat and didn't know it was your seat because your name's not written on it. Except for some of you, like Frank, his name was on his seat because I, I put it there. You see, when we're the ones on the inside, sometimes we don't often stop to ask who is on the outside and why are they on the outside? Why is somebody still on the outside and not feeling like they're allowed to come in? And is there something that I'm doing that's preventing them from feeling like they're allowed? See, we have to look within ourselves and and ask this question. What what am I willing to sacrifice? What is it really going to cost me? See, at South Hills, this is what we believe. We believe that church should be free. Church should be free to non-churched people. Church should be free to non-Christians. Church should be free to the broken, to the hurting, to the searching. But we understand that church is not free. That there's a cost involved. And what Jesus wants, and what we try to understand, is that insiders have to personally sacrifice to make it easy for outsiders come in. There's a level of sacrifice that we are willing to undergo for the end result. That there's no cost too high to see someone come into an understanding of who Jesus is. There's no price too big for me to let go of my ideal or for me to let go of my thing. To watch the bigger thing the Jesus thing, connect with people. And the pushback, I get it. The pushback immediately is, well, Dave, I've got to take care of, I've got to take care of my own. You know, I've got my family and my thing and I've got to do my, my stuff. And, you know, if I, if I give or if I sacrifice, how is there going to be anything left for me? You see, it's the reason why we think that way is because we don't understand the economy of God. See, the economy of man is the money changer in the temple. The economy of man is, is, well, I've got to get as much as I can to take care of me. And if I can get more, then I can be more powerful. I can feel more important. I can have more for myself. But the economy of God is complete opposite. It's saying, how much can I give? How much can I do for someone else? Knowing that as much as I give away, I can never outgive God. 
If I keep giving, somehow God keeps giving back to me and it doesn't make sense. I can't give you a formula for it. All I can tell you is that it's real and it works. And God's economy is so different. It's a sufficiency mindset that somehow when I do more and I give more and I, and I sacrifice more, somehow God just keeps giving back to me. I honestly can't tell you how to make it work. All I can tell you is to try it. And this is not just about money. When we give of our time, which is so valuable to us, when we give of our resource, when we give of our influence, when we give of our network of relationships, when we, when we give of our intellect, and some of us, we have incredible minds that think about things like nobody else thinks about. So when we give of ourselves, we begin to see things differently. We begin to connect things differently. We realize that this has never been about us. The South Hills Church is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about my name. It's not about the name of the church. This church is all about those who are still searching. And Jesus got so angry because the church had become the opposite of what God intended it to be. It was supposed to be the church for all people. It was supposed to be the perfect place imperfect people. So let's pray. Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message. We hope that you've been blessed and encouraged by it. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated on all that's happening at South Hill.